Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. It's great to see you all. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us today. I'm excited to learn with you all in our Pearls of Kindness series so that we can each day live more thoughtfully and gently and kindly and compassionately. And as always, we're gonna go in and out of traditional texts as well as contemporary ideas and then open up for a rich conversation like always. Let's start with a poll question. How has caring for children in any context been for you? I never cared for children full-time. I did it and it was the hardest experience of my life. I did it and it was wonderful, but also so hard. Or I did it and it was all simply wonderful and blissful. <laughs> okay, 33% said they never cared for children. No one said it was the hardest experience of their life. 56%, it was wonderful, but also so hard. And 11% said it was simply wonderful and blissful. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I'd love to meet that person. Maybe you'll confess later who you are. Okay, okay, friends. The Egal Yeladim, caring for children. So what's interesting is that while the Torah obligates us to honor and revere our parents, right? Because it shows up, the Ten Commandments shows up twice in the Torah. And each time, one time teaches us honor, one time teaches us revere. We already learned that together. It does not explicitly command us regarding the reverse, caring for our children. That's an interesting question. We care for God, we care for parents, we care for strangers, we care for fellow Jews, but where is the Torah on children? Nevertheless, the Talmud teaches that one has an obligation to support their young children. This Talmudic passage does not indicate whether or not this obligation is biblical or rabbinic in nature, but the Rambam seemingly implies that the mitzvah of supporting our children is a biblical command. He writes, just as one is required to provide food for his wife, he's talking about a man, of course, uh, in this context, so too is he required to provide food for his minor sons and daughters. If he does not wish to do so, he is less than an impure bird, which feeds its young. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting fighting word. Sometimes the Rambam gets a little uh, feisty over there. So <laughs> less than an impure bird. You probably haven't heard that accusation in modern times. It takes so much to care for our children. First, there are all of those of the most basic necessities, a safe home, food, clothes, schooling, medical and dental care, just to name a few. Then there's the greater human needs one needs for actualization, like nurturing and hugging, 
inspiring, listening, respecting, setting aside time to connect to who they are as individuals. In addition to wanting to, wanting to meet the basic needs and the deeper needs of our children, we also want to influence them towards nourishing the best moral and spiritual paths. This is actually much more complicated than we might think. We can preach and teach our children all day long, but if we do not live by those values ourselves, there will be no power of influence. Children are sponges of behavior and thought. They watch us when we think they are not, and we cannot take off our role model hat. Our children learn from and mimic our behavior for good and for bad. So becoming a parent requires that we are as vigilant about our behavior and the origins of our actions and thoughts just as much as we consider our children's. Transformative education happens through mentorship and a life of modeled virtue. Here's a Talmudic tale from Chagiga. Rav Yochanan stood and kissed Rav Elazar on his head. Rav Yochanan said, blessed is God, the Lord of Israel, who gave such a son to Avraham Avinu, for he knows how to understand and investigate and expound upon the works of the chariot. This is, a, of course, a famous mystical revelation. Merkava. There are those who preach well, but they do not practice. There are those who practice well, but they do not preach. You practice what you preach. Happy are you, Abraham Avinu, that Elazar ben Aruch is your offspring. Okay, very interesting. This, so the study of Judaism cannot remain academic, as much as I love academic Judaism. By its design and essence, Torah is meant to be lived practiced in every aspect of life, some of which we may not even be aware of ourselves. It's the, it is the guide of the depths of human nature, both the good, the bad, and the ugly. The rabbis taught the danger of merely studying Torah from the outside, but missing the soul of the tradition. Here's what it says in Pirkei Avot. Rav Yishmael Bar Rav Yossi said, one who studies Torah in order to teach it is given the means to study and to teach. Okay, not so bad. But one who studies in order to practice is given the means to study and to teach, to observe and to practice. So when we learn, we don't say, oh, how do I learn in order to share this, even though it's great to share? How do I learn this in order to do in the world? One cannot be a true teacher without observing and practicing what they study and teach. Practice what you preach is not merely advice and admonishment. It is axiomatic to being an effective parent and teacher. This is not so easy, however, when one is an idealistic dreamer who teaches many profound values. Here's an example of one who succeeded in this manner, we might suggest. Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion did not just preach the values of equality when he read the Proclamation of Independence. He frequently modeled them in humble ways. One little example, Ben-Gurion actually used to receive hundreds of letters, too many for him to answer on his own. He saw that one was from three out of four, three out of work Arabs. He spent most of the afternoon calling people in the government to find them jobs. This was not easy or typical in the 1950s amidst continued conflict. I can recall as a child watching my father speak to the homeless with such respect and my mother teaching children with such patience and observing as an adult my mentor of Avi hugging every maintenance custodian he met, my dear wife modestly showing care for others when it seemed no one was watching, and my high school teacher spending her free time 
to challenge me in my thinking and direction. These role models, among so many others, shaped my character more than any words. They spoke because behind their action were genuine and active care. A child watches their parents so closely. It's not in the set moments of our lives, such as the proverbial dinner, dinner table lesson, that a value can be inculcated. It is typically in watching how a child's parents talk to one another, how one's father speaks with the cashier, and how one's mother converses with a frustrating telemarketer. That's the ultimate moral test, right? How to talk to a telemarketer. <laughs> to teach virtue, one must model virtue. To parent with values, one must live with those values consistently, even when one thinks that no one is watching. Rav Avraham Yitzchak Cohen Cook, the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of Israel, taught, I love this quote, the pure righteous do not complain of the dark, but increase the light. They do not complain of evil, but increase justice. They do not complain of heresy, but increase faith. They do not complain of ignorance, but increase wisdom. Friends, this is one of the best ways to determine a leader or an activist or a change maker, as opposed to a kvetcher. Kvetcher is a whiner. A whiner is just, oh, democracy, climate change, my job, my headache, ugh, my boss. Like, ugh. it's just like kvetching all the time. Like we all kvetch, like we can all, we all know we do it, right? But Rav Cook says, no, no, we don't complain. We bring good, we bring good. So when we see the problem, how do we channel our convention towards action, towards good? In short, it is incumbent upon each of us to lead by example. Rav Cook lived up to this teaching as a tremendous force of proactive good. Our role is to be a source of light and to walk with light. It is all too easy to profess virtue, but to live with virtue is the real challenge. It is all too easy to enter polemics complaining about the system. Oh, the system is broken. The system's oppressive. But we must work to change the system each day of our lives to further a more just and holy society. How we treat our fellow human beings, both those who live in our household and in the outside world, echoes a greater distance than we could ever imagine. Actions have a rippling effect. So while education at the home is primary, of course, we must be deeply concerned with the broader curriculum our children are provided as well. One of the most potent indicators of a sustained Jewish life is an upbringing that nourishes the intellectual dynamism of Jewish thought and lived experience. That being said, consider the typical Jewish educational experience. Whether through day school or supplemental programs, the vast majority of curricula tend to focus on Jewish identity development, varying levels of Hebrew linguistics, Jewish texts, Israel engagement, Jewish history, comfort with Jewish culture, socialization, and the like. These indiv individual elements are important, of course, but I believe the number one priority in nurturing a child's faculty is missing from the aforementioned list. That pedagogical priority is character development. And by character development, I don't mean a vague general aware awareness of the midot, of the character traits. Oh, there's honor and be a mensch and you know, don't be angry. That these things that help us guide through our daily lives. But rather, when I think about character development, I specifically mean the cultivation of Musar, character refinement principles. One of the best ways to instill character refinement and development in children is by encouraging them to ask questions. The questions we ask are reflections of our individuality, our way to relate to any material we're being taught. 
Refining one's spiritual practices through the practice of inquiry not only allows for the internalization of deep truths, it prepares the mind and soul to venture out beyond normative comfort zones and into the recesses of the unknown. If we are to rise, excuse me, if we are to raise the next generations of dreamers, then this is an essential lesson we must impart to and inculcate in our children. Indeed, we can only address the messiness of our children's outer world to the extent that we have the ability to address the messiness of their inner worlds. We bring light to others only if we model leadership and good deeds from a place of inner light and balance. While there are countless ethical virtues that we need our children to cultivate, these capabilities can only be displayed if they're represented in everyday situations. When students are taught humility, courage, patience, and gratitude among the multitude of other positive traits, they're getting an education that goes beyond the page. To be sure, facts will come and go. Texts will be studied and forgotten. But our inner lives, the lens with which we encounter ourselves, other people, and God, become part of a permanent epistemology of spiritual discovery. When we approach life from the virtue of hitlamdut, meaning seeking to grow and learn from every encounter, Jewish commitments are sustained and refreshed. At the same time, ethical and spiritual lives grow and flourish. Because of this view, I'm not calling for minor superficial adjustment, say adding a small Musar curriculum to the school. I'm calling for radical change, making Musar the central element of Jewish education. I'm not indicating that the remainder of what comprises Jewish education should be tossed out the window. However, through this style of Musar-based teaching, students will be adding another deeper layer of learning. Hebrew history, Jewish culture, cultivating their identities and developing friendships, all through the lens of Musar sensibilities and character refinement. But most of all, they will become part of a continuous tradition that goes beyond the basic standard where the end goal is developing our children to be righteous and holy. They become more self-aware, more other-aware, and more God-aware. We enrich their souls through emotional intelligence while simultaneously instilling a deep-rooted vivacity of Jewish wisdom. We need our students to learn spiritual truths, awe, wonder, trust, faith, joy, but we cannot do it without providing a platform for them to flourish. Often Jewish education becomes stuck in a pattern of box checking, Aleph Bet, check, five books of Moses, check, crusades and expulsions, check, the miracle of Israel, check. Where's the fire? Where's the questioning? Where's the zest for learning? What is beautiful, remarkable, and unique about Jewish teachings? When everything becomes rote, intellectual stasis prevails stagnation follows. There can be no growth without exploration via the individual's lens. This is precisely the implicit message of a dictum in Pirkei Avot regarding tefillah. Do not allow your prayer to become rote. Rather, it must be an experience of seeking mercy and petition before God. I mean, imagine that. If we just showed up and we sang some prayers, we, we said some things, but actually, we never actually woke ourselves up. What's true of tefillah, of prayer, is equally true with regard to Jewish education. And just as one whose prayer becomes rote may lead to his or her abandoning prayer altogether, educators and parents who teach by rote 
place their children and students in greater risk of abandoning Jewish practice altogether? Where is the personal, that sense of our children understanding that they're a part of an assembly of continu con continuation, questioning and evolution? But exploring new avenues of engagement is difficult as well. I've seen this personally. When at VBM, we launched our Teen Musar Fellowship, I was skeptical. After all, isn't Musar just for adults? Do teens have the maturity to look at their inner lives and articulate, articulate their inner lives in a reasonable, mature way with peers? My fears were allayed almost instantly. I learned that the capacity is most certainly there. And in fact, I know from parenting my young children that it's there even earlier from formative years. Children are sometimes the wisest people in the room, able to absorb, understand, and contemplate past the capacity of an adult mind, which if not consciously opened up, has the tendency to harden over time. Friends, to conclude here, then I wanna open it up to your thoughts. Teaching Judaism to the next generation with character development and refinement as a starting point around which all the rest is centered is an imperative not only because we are commanded to do so, but because we have the opportunity to shape the lives of countless souls in a positive manner. We should, indeed, we need to commit to passing this wisdom down. And by doing so, we demonstrate that Jewish wisdom is forever relevant. It will allow students to thrive as they go through life. This wisdom, this model of education helps impressionable minds to be successful at school and work, to develop meaningful relationships, and most importantly, to have a rich and rewarding spiritual life in which to cultivate happiness. This happiness will, with God's help, pass down to the next generation and the next and the next. So friends, to conclude here, the kindness towards children, of course, begins with basic human needs. Think Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? The shelter, the clothes. And then we get to the emotional nourishment, the nurturing, the self-esteem, the care. And then we get to basic education. But then not as the lowest priority, but as a significant priority, is this spiritual and moral life. And that too is not just in the realm of, of, of kind of theology. This is in the realm of kindness, the kindness to care about the inner life of a child. In fact, many children I know, adults I know, pointed to the most significant part of their childhood was when a parent or a teacher or a mentor or a coach truly saw their inner life. They saw their inner life. And an empirical study I read recently said, the best way to cultivate empathy in a child is not to teach it, not to preach it, not even to model it, but to take care of the child's need. By their need being met, their inner need being seen, they are more capable of seeing someone else's inner need. Okay, friends, let me pause here. I would love to hear your thoughts and questions on this topic of kindness towards children. I discovered that my grandchildren are extremely compassionate. And I'm sure my daughters were, but I wasn't quite aware of it. So what I've done is set up a trust that the kids decide every quarter where they're going to donate. And they have donated to save the children and we've discussed what that means they've donated to humane society to alley cats because they have cats and they also have donated to trees in israel because my 12 year old grandson 
in one of his classes found out that you could do that. So my intention is that as these kids grow older, they are aware of needs of those less fortunate and are willing and I don't want to say joyful, but they are willing to give of themselves to help others. And I model it, but I don't believe they would understand my modeling. But having them involved in making their own decisions is what I think is important for their continuing growth. Beautiful, Eileen. Thank you so much for sharing that, that important model of that another way of caring for a child, showing them kindness, is teaching them how to give. And the, one of the best ways to teach them how to give is not just to model it, like you said, but giving them practice and the resources to do that. So thank you. For those of you who have your video on, I wanna ask you a question. You can raise your hand for one or the either. If you have a million coins to give, is it better to give the million coins to one person or group? Or the second option is give one coin a million times. How many of you vote, vote for all million to one person or group? How many of you vote, vote one coin a million times? Okay. You are all my Monadian. You're <laughs> all my Monadian. You already probably knew that this morning when you woke up, you said I'm my Monadian today. But Maimonides is an Aristotelian and as an Aristotelian, he believes character development occurs through practice. He thinks that it's not a, and this is strange for Rambam Maimonides because he's, he's an intellectual snob. He thinks it's all about the mind. And here is his exception. He thinks we become virtuous in giving by doing it as much as possible. The more we do it, the better. So we have to build into our day consistent. So a consequentialist, a utilitarianist, what are you talking about? One coin isn't going to help somebody, right? You should give split, like give a million to one. You make a real difference in someone's life or an organization. But one, over and over, now Maimonides says absolutely that this is not only about helping them, it is about making sure you're cultivating this own virtue in yourself so that it sustains you to continue to do it, that you be a person of giving. And so Eileen is, is reminding us of a way to do that. Thank you, Eileen. Yes, Matthew, I think you were gonna jump in. No, not jumping yeah. in, oh. but I hit the wrong button, okay? Oh, good, oh, good, he is jumping in. Back, back, on, back on mute, okay? Oh, okay, great, thanks, Matthew, okay. Okay, over to you, Steve. Me? Oh, yes, if, if you're ready. Uh, yeah, um, I, I raise my kids with four L's, love, limits, learning, and levity. Unfortunately, they practice levity more than anything else, but they surely do make me laugh. But I think there's also a good deal of luck involved. And... I thought about this yesterday when I was playing pickleball and I was talking to a friend of mine about how great I thought his young son was for the first time playing playing the game. And he said, it's amazing how we think we treat our kids exactly alike, but his three children have turned out differently than the others. Some, one loves sports, one loves math, and one loves acting. And he said, I don't know if they all share uh, what Eileen was talking about giving to others yet, but I noticed that as much as I thought I was applying the same rules to each one, each of my children has turned out differently. 
So I'm not sure where I'm going with that, but I think the last of my L's is luck. Love <laughs> limits learning levity and luck. I love that. I love that. Um, thank you for that. I, I, I wrote down that list there and that value of levity um, as being a safe place to learn, to experiment, to create, to imagine. Um, uh, that inner space of uh, that's gentle um, and, and, and get, uh, gentle in such, a, in such a tough world. So what a gift. Thank you for that. And that's, that's a good springboard to another point I wanted to share around self-compassion. We know that those who don't exercise self-compassion are very likely to be less compassionate towards others. And that is all the more true with children. Um, that if we're not, if one does not know how to be gentle with oneself, if one is very overly self-critical, it is very likely to trickle out towards others as well. It's funny, I was just at my daughter's pre-K recently, her pre-K graduation, graduation, and they had every kid stand up and say what they want to be when they grow up. And the first two boys went up and said, doctor, and the crowd went wild. And then the next kid went up and said, Iron Man. And everyone like didn't know what to do. And the next one was like a princess designer and nobody knew what to do. And it kept, it kept going. But I was like, and I was like reminded of like this Jewish joke of like every parent wanting their, their kid to be a doctor, you know, and this, this pressure that emerges to fit a certain mold, right? And uh, we have to check that. Um, we have to check that in terms of how we, you know, allow our, our children to flourish and where, you know, to, to the fullness of, of who they can be. And sometimes that starts with thinking about how we were parented. If we were parented in a, in a small box, we might have the inclination to do that as well towards our children and grandchildren and how to help them expand that box. And as Steve reminds us, levity is one of the ways. Okay, over to Dr. Vicki Cabot. Okay, no, I, I was gonna tell you that I, I really thought that the message was so beautiful. And I really think it resonates um, as a parent and as a grandparent. And I also wanted to just throw another piece out here and you might wanna comment on this, that um, this whole issue of parental rights has been uh, in the news. Um, and there's a whole movement of people you know, thinking about what's happening in our schools and thinking that there has to be uh, more, whatever, I guess, input from parents on what's being taught, et cetera. As a teacher, I have problems with that. Um, and uh, I think that what your message is, is something that really um, reinforces the role that we play as parents. And that's really something that we need to be thinking about as parents and grandparents, and then responding in, a, in that way to those who think that we need to be going in and policing our teachers um, and not allowing children to read certain books, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think? Beautiful, I love that. I wanna open that up to the group if anyone wants to respond to this powerful question that Vicki says, what are the limits of the parents' role to step back um, in an educational system? And, and, and especially as it, as it reflects to a number of these headlines we're seeing today. Anyone wanna engage with that? Yes, um, <laughs> please jump in. As a former teacher, if a parent has background that can contribute to the curricula, fine. But my feeling is most of these parents are very tunnel vision and looking to espouse only one idea. And 
I'm not going to go into what all those one ideas could be, but then you have a classroom that is profoundly disturbing because they're promoting one idea rather than engaging the student with the world. Thanks, Eileen. Uh, Matthew, I see your hand back up. You want to jump in on that? Yeah, I was just going to comment many, many years ago, roommate in college from Odessa, Texas. And it was wealthy oil country, but the education was really horrible because, well, I made my money because I was a farmer. We struck oil. Why should we spend any money? I know as much as anyone else. And it's you know, the know nothings of the world. And I think that reinforces what someone just said is if the people have something to contribute for the greater good, they should be heard and not just excluded, but how do you make that decision of what the greater good is and who's entitled to speak? Great, great. So Vicki, can I, thank you, thank you, Matthew. Vicki, can I put the question back to you? What would you put as the limits on that? Like what would be the valid times you think a parent uh, should engage, interfere um, with kind of the, the teacher's discretion? Um, I really was looking at it the other way, okay? in the sense of what I, as a parent or grandparent, should be doing at home. And I would say that the values that you are speaking about, like Musra values and so on, um, I don't think they need to be taught in a public school classroom per se. I think this, the teachers have a responsibility to create a climate in the classroom where every child can thrive and every child is recognized, seen as they say, right, and heard. Um, and as Eileen said, that there's a diversity of opinion and, and discussion, whether it's for little kids or big. Um, I have a problem, I think, not, not necessarily I wouldn't express it the way Eileen does, but I feel like there's different boundaries in terms of uh, public and private. And the things that I do in my home or did in my home with my kids growing up, um, I hope that they take with them to school. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And, and I uh, have a certain amount of trust for um, the educational system having been part of it. If you read Jill Lepore on this, she um, goes through a whole history of parental rights, which is fascinating. But, but that really made me think about, you know, having some um, respect for the system, mm -hmm. for the system that creates those, especially on a college campus, that gives people their uh, their degrees, like you and I went through those programs, okay, and there's, it's, you know, there's a peer review and so forth and so on to make sure that you're staying within what are will be considered the, the right boundaries in the academy. And I think there are really wise people out there in education. Love it, love it. So before someone else jumps in, let me share like the one or two minute version of the history of moral education in, in over the last few decades in America. The early approach was called the bag of virtues approach which meant here are the, are the list of that virtues that as academic academics of the schools of education deem most important. And we need to teach our kids, be honest, don't lie, right? Rules, there, there were rules. Right. There, were, there were rules of what it means to be a good person. And there were lists of virtues, what it means to be uh, a decent person. And we, and we would, we, we, we would and I, of course everyone had a different classroom experience, but that was the general trend. Then Lawrence Kohlberg emerged out of the Harvard Education School and he said, no, 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 this is not about rules. This is not about a bag of virtues. This is about moral reasoning. 
And his whole approach now was how do we engage in thought experiments with students so that they can reason through dilemmas. Mm -hmm. And that was very influenced by Harvard philosophers at the time. And he was um, uh, building off of John Rawls and to some extent Dewey, even though Dewey had been around a while earlier. Um, and, um, but then ultimately transcending rules into a place of reason, but then transcending reason to a place of conscience, right? But then he got pushed back in the early 80s by Carol Gilligan. His student, Carol Gilligan, who's now a professor at NYU said, oh, you got a big problem, Lawrence Kohlberg. You've rated all the boys and girls on how they're doing in their moral reasoning. And it turns out your boys are doing better than your girls. What does that tell me? It tells me your metrics are flawed because there's no way that boys are more morally enlightened than girls. So she wrote a book called In a Different Voice, an incredible book. Um, today, it might be viewed as outdated because the, do the dominant trend in, uh, 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 there's, there's a lot of diversity, but the dominant trend in, in feminism today still is not different, but equal. Um, and because of that, her argument was different. She said, for example, when boys and girls get in a fight on the playing field, boys will choose rules over relationships. Boys will quit the, the sports game to honor the rules. Girls will change the rules to honor the relationships. They'll change the rules of the game to keep everyone together on the court. So she has a bunch of empirical studies she shows like that and how boys and girls operate differently. So Gilligan emerges and says, no, your moral reasoning metrics are flawed. So then we enter into a new era. But then what happens, friends, and this is where Vicky's point emerges with the, the tensions the, and the politicization day, is that what does ethics come to mean by liberal educators? It means social justice. As opposed to talking virtues, as opposed to talking moral reasoning, it means you should be an advocate for LGBT folks. It means you should be anti-racist. It means you should stand for a liberal political agenda for many of them, not all of them. Now that's where it gets politicized because most of those educators are gonna take, take a certain approach and the conservative families are gonna be opposed to that. And that's where education is now at the forefront of these battles. Okay. Social justice activists trying to push it as a, as a space for social justice education and centrist and conservatives say, what are you doing? That's the stuff for the home. And so that's why a lot of families um, of means started choosing private school over public school. I mean, that was happening for a long time. But, um, but one of it was, okay, no moral education in the schools, no more bag of virtues, no more moral reasoning. Now it's gonna be a space for social justice. And the private school is gonna be a space where we can talk about the values as we choose and parents are gonna have a lot of influence because they have money. So Vicky, response to that before I open it up again. Do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? I think what you what you just uh, related probably is it was a an excellent uh, context to provide. Um, I still feel like uh, first of all, I think in some ways you made a very good argument for Jewish day school, uh, which my children went to public school, so we did not avail ourselves of us. But I think there you have that that space to do more with this. Um, I still am uncomfortable though with any group coming in and, and, and pushing a particular agenda that is, that is unfortunately everything's been politicized and is political. Uh, I feel like there are certain values that are overarching and maybe others would say it's watering it down. So you don't necessarily have to talk about reaching out to the LGBT community, but you have to talk about respecting other people for the choices they make. Uh, acknowledging the fact that there are different kinds of families, but you don't necessarily have to have a full-blown discussion about that. 
Uh, and it depends on the age level of the kids. It depends on, on where the students are coming from as well. When you get to older students, they're going to be raising questions. And we do have to be prepared to figure out how to respond to those kinds of things. Uh, but I feel it's just it's setting some kind of a of a general, um, like I said, an environment in the classroom where uh, each student feels that they are part of the group and that they're valued for being part of it and that they can be who they are yeah. uh, and accepted in that way. I guess it's in a way of at what you said, not espousing, not preaching, but doing. And, and I think good teachers can create those environments. And as you said before, when you talked about your mentors, make each student feel that they're bringing something to the table. My best teachers were the ones that made me feel that way, even in graduate school, um, where I often was the unconventional student. So, you know, but, you know, they, to, to say, please let us hear from you, you have something to say. Awesome, thank you. So who have we not heard from yet who wants to jump in? Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Uh, Great, great class, Rabbi. I, I really am honing into the part of compassion. Um, and I think that compassion steps uh, into uh, such an important place, not just from our parents, but also from our teachers. Uh, I recently shared on my social medias a year ago, um, I got in a lot of trouble at a zoo uh, in a class field trip. I got in a lot of trouble that potentially could have really, really damaged me. Um, and as we got escorted out of the zoo, the teacher that was the head teacher, I prepared myself uh, and she came in and I prepared myself to get uh, a lecture from hell. You know, I, I was like, I'm going to I'm going to get suspended. And I was expecting the worst already. You know, I was like shaking. I'm like, this is over. Um, I, I was ready for it, you know, and in, in turn, she just laughed. And she, she said, y'all are so silly. And, you know, me being me, I was like, aren't you going to suspend us? Aren't you going to go like call our parents, make this even, you know, escalate this as I fully was expecting this. And she said, no, I think you've had enough. I think you've had enough of, of what happened today. And I, I don't think this is helpful for me to escalate this. And I think now look back and, and how much of an influence and how much it impacted my life to see that compassion in that mm -hmm. teacher that could have easily you know, that, that moment right there could have easily completely switched where, where mm -hmm. I am right now in life. It was that moment in, in, in compassion from that teacher to really take an extra step. And, and that's why I think like compassion uh, really stems out, even outside of, of parenting, also into how we uh, interact with, with a lot of children because a lot, oftentimes uh, children are robbed of compassion and I think that it, it's not just up to the parents, it's up to all of us to be compassionate towards, and in my opinion, some of the most vulnerable, which are our children. It's interesting, um, just before we go to Gary, I see, so Gary's hand, um, is that, thank you so much for sharing that, Eddie. And you could imagine someone making the opposite argument or the opposite reflection, that how they weren't let off the hook and they were really, you know, it was taken seriously, was actually a big growth experience for them. And yet your point, um, your experience around the compassion, I think one is we can all relate to as well. Something that's interesting about the political dimension here as well is that we see that the criminal justice system um, and the national understanding of criminology is interconnected with how we think of parental punitive measures and educational punitive measures. That when we move from a consequentialist to a deontological approach in, in criminal justice, the same thing happened in schools. 
that we used to move from, we used to be in a model of what's best for all parties, for victim, for perpetrator, for taxpayer, for the system at large, into a model deontology of just desserts, meaning punishing people harshly is good for, is good for society. So too, when that move happened in mass incarceration, the same thing happened in schools with suspension and detentions. And so, um, how, so we might have an ideology around this and how we think about punishments, um, how we punish our kids if we have if we had kids, how we think of punishments in school, um, and how we think of it in, in the system at large. Yes, Gary, and then and then Hannah. Uh, I to go back and to address uh, uh, Vicky's uh, uh, comment. Uh, I think one of the things that made this country great was public school education, and uh, I mean, dating going way way back. And you know, I was I was educated in public school, and and our kids were half Jewish day school, half public uh, school when they got older. Uh, and, and I think that the benefit of public school versus that of private school is you, you, in public school, you're, you should be exposed to multiple ideas. And when you, when you take your kids out and say, well, I don't like what's being taught in public school and put them in a private school, be it a parochial school or, or just an educational institution where they're only taught what you want them to be taught, then how do we ever break down societal uh, 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 issues such as racism and, and, and injustice and what have you, uh, because your, your children aren't exposed to those uh, situations. So we're, we're like now we're, we're back stuck in a grind uh, over and over and over again, where we see increasing hatred and misunderstanding uh, and, and lack of justice because well, I don't want my children to be exposed to that. Uh, but that's not what society is all about. We can't move forward unless we have uh, e even exposure to people. And I happen to agree with Vicki, you know, that I think we have to have exposure. We don't have to say have uh, uh, subsets of exposure to like necessarily the far left is asking us. But I, but if you never get exposed to that, then we're never going to uh, break, uh, break, break down the where we're at. It's kind of like, uh, well, I don't want my children to be taught about uh, sex education. Well, then the parents don't want to teach sex education at home, but uh, but yet we don't want it taught into school. So we're going to, it's, to me, it's become that uh, blown out of, out, of, out of complete proportion. Great. Great. Thank you, Gary. Yeah, great. Gary makes a great point around here around diversity and diversity of thought and being in a community uh, where we learn from a young age of how to grapple with difference and different views. And I think one of the questions emerges around timing. Um, so I'll give you an example. Um, I was in touch with, with a, a school where um, they, at a very young age, wanted to introduce um, a book about uh, a book about uh, a gay family with these with these with this young, with these young kids. And um, there was a there's a um, one child has lesbian parents. And, um, and that was the only child who comes from that, that family in the class. And the school decided based upon backlash from something that happened in the past to give a, um, a permission slip to the families to sign off on, to like being there this day or hearing this book. And um, on the one hand, the families were mad in a prior experience because they said, I wanted to prepare my kids for this educational experience. They don't know anything about sex or about diversity of families. And I wanna have a conversation before the school does. On the other hand, the lesbian family was very upset. They said, permission slip. They have to sign off on whether they can talk about this and, and were incredibly upset. 
And so um, that this goes back to Vicky and Gary's points here. Like, when do things get introduced? What is the role of the parent in that? Like, what's the timing and what's the process? Um, or for example, the Holocaust. What would happen if in kindergarten there was a Holocaust class before the parents talked about it with their kid? Would, would a parent have the right to be upset? Say, well, I want to frame it first or I want to have a conversation with them or, you know, or, um, um, or around, you know, around anti-Semitism or around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Like, oh, I told my kids Israel was a candy land. They came home today and they heard this whole conflict. I didn't even get to talk to them yet, right? Do we, uh, do, do we let parents know when things are coming? Do we let them prepare for it? Um, and what's in and what's out there? Okay, Hannah, over to you. Um, <clears throat> I was thinking a lot after, especially after you brought in the self-compassion piece to parenting. Um, I don't have any children yet, but I was, I've recently been thinking about um how how the that compact this kindness towards children also relates to this kind of inverse relationship that you have with your parents as you eventually sort of become more in the world than they are and I feel that so much with my mom like when I was I have you know a list of resentments but um kind of thinking about the mistreatments I endured or perceived mistreatments as her child's needs not being met as like a reaction to her own childhood. And so um, kind of thinking about parenting my parent in the way one might be thinking about parenting a child. And um, yeah, I find that to be helpful. Thank you. Yeah, wow. Thank you for that. Um, that in some ways we all have gaps in our childhood experiences, most certainly all have gaps from our parenting experience. There's no child who's probably ever been like, my parents parented me perfectly. Maybe somebody said that, I don't know. I never met them, but right? everyone has a list of things that were amazing and a list of things that were either a little bad or really bad. And, um, and, and like you're saying around compassion towards self and compassion towards them, seeing those gaps in their experience can help us be more understanding of who they are and where they've come from. And in some ways more gentle with ourselves as well, as we see that being passed down and see our own imperfections. On a similar uh, note, um, there, are, there are these parenting books around spiritual parenting that talk about how like the things that trigger us um, emerging from our own childhood and our own parents are these huge spiritual opportunities for our own reflection and growth around that. The things that, and a lot of those have to do with the, are those early experiences with our parents that we've simply never fully wrestled with. And we will tend to repeat with our kids and, and our grandkids for that exact same reason. Um, so, so Hannah, yeah, thank you for that. That's, a, that's, that, that's, really, that's really powerful. And it connects our, our prior session on, on, on our relationship to our parents with, with this session, our relationship to our children. Sure, yeah, I'm not a parent, so I want to do more listening than uh, talking here. But I, as for your last question um, about, you know, offering parents the um, the opportunity to like dis discuss something at home before before a child is uh, uh, exposed to it at school. I, with I am also not an educator, so so I I see I, that seems like a, a comprehensive way to get a student primed and prepped to have a discussion at school. Uh, maybe even like you know maybe make them more able to engage in the conversation at school. Um, but I also think it probably matters because what, like when, if it's talked about everything, if like if if 
parents are like prepped about all topics, but if parents are just prepped about topics like a same sex couple, then it makes that subject like taboo. And it's also, you're also thinking about like what you're communicating to the parents and what you're communicating, like the, the kind of world that you are um, um, creating by warning parents about some topics and not others. So if you just like, if a school as part of the curriculum or, or whatever, it says every year, like these are the things we're going to cover in this order. And if, if talking about Native Americans, if that's something you want to discuss, like, you know, it doesn't have to be these trigger topics, like anything in social history, you want to talk about the American Revolution, maybe they can like read a book or go see the Liberty Bell if you're like in the East Coast or whatever. Um, but if you only limit it to these topics that are like politically divisive, potentially, it kind of fosters the idea that this is like something that you could argue against rather than like, this is just the curriculum. Talk about it at home. I wonder what other people think about that. Yeah. Julia, before we open it up, can I throw you one question back to you? Yeah. Um, as it relates to preparing for identity, mm -hmm. let's say um, it is the, uh, a new child is arriving at school and it is the first time there's gonna be a black student at, the, at this white school. The first time there's gonna be a child in a wheelchair first time there's going to be um, uh, an Asian student, right? Let's say in this, in this kind of monolithic culture, should um, the parents be pre prepped? Should students be prepped in a sense of uh, around this diversity? Or do you think uh, just let things happen? Uh, let's assume there's generally not a culture of prepping. My guess if this, if this is the first time a student is exposed to someone, probably like compassionate prepping would be valuable because otherwise kids are left to their own devices, which like often results in like people saying, oh, you're different and like acting in ways that makes the person feel other rather than if they know before they meet the child that the child is gonna be somehow different then they can, they can like get over that initial shock on their own and like uh, adjust to the mindset and maybe even learn like, what are things you shouldn't say to someone in a wheelchair? What like get some basic like how to's that we often like that I didn't learn until like I, the internet and 10 things you shouldn't say to someone with xyz like it would have been helpful to know that as a child because I might have said things that were hurtful to various people so I don't see much of a problem with that as long as it's done compassionately like the education and the notification great, but great. what do you think yeah no uh, I'll, I'll open that back up to folks um what do you think here about this idea of preparing schools, preparing families, preparing students. And, and I'll, I'll raise one other point while folks are thinking about that. In addition to parents trying to manage schools, what do you think about the, the opposite where, where schools put regulations on families? Let me give an example. Should there be regulations, for example, at a Jewish school or, or community around spending on celebrations? There's, let's say there's a whole range of socioeconomic statuses in the, in the class. And one kid's gonna have a ha like a quarter million dollar bar mitzvah. And one kid's gonna have like bagels and Kool-Aid. You know what I mean? Like, should the school be like, here's a limit we're gonna put on like how our community engages celebrations outside of the school? I was gonna say within the school community, I think absolutely. Um, I think uh, outside of the school, I think that becomes more problematic. Again, it goes back to my thinking about the teaching that needs to be done before, about thinking about those things, about how other people feel and about having wanting everyone to be comfortable and to, be, and to feel included, 
on all, you know, whether it's religious or whether it is um, you know, class and whether it's race or whether whatever, go down the line. Um, so I think that's that's an interesting question, but um, I don't necessarily know that in uh, in real life it would work. I'm just going to want to add one other thing too to this conversation when you asked about schools, and I had an experience it's a long time ago, but about giving notice. I was involved in the public school system in the middle school with, with my youngest, and it was about sex education, and they were putting in a new curriculum. And the question was, what do we do with parents who really don't want their kids to be part of that class? And how do we deal with it? Do you have to opt in or opt out? And what they ended up with was an opt out. So you had, you know, they sent all the information home, they sold it. They, I think education, letting parents know what you're doing is critical. And I was sat on this committee for how long to discuss what we were doing, okay? Um, but then, uh, but then in this way they had, if parents really felt it went against their value system, then they should be able to, you know, give their, have their children opt out and be given another alternative. Right. So um, as far as spending on bar and pot misfits, that's in, in time in memorial, that's been a problem. So <laughs> let's see if somebody else has an idea. Interesting enough in the Hasidic communities where they did have sanctuary laws, they were often not honored um, because of the, the poverty and because of the uniformity. They started saying, here's the number of guests you're allowed to invite. Here's the number of band members you're allowed to have if there was a band at all. Um, here's the food you're allowed to serve. Like you can only serve fish, not meat, or here's how much you right. can spend, right? And, and, uh, and oftentimes these things have been trampled over. Yes, I saw a hand from Eileen and then Matthew as well. And then we'll wrap up. Um, as my grandson will be bar mitzvahed in January, this is very paramount. And my kids have decided that after the bar mitzvah, there will be a lunch held at the temple. So they are recognizing that it is a special passage, but they are not having a Saturday evening party at a hotel. They, they are trying to contain this to recognize what is a bar mitzvah, not how many presents and how much can you take. Awesome. Thank, you. thank you. Okay, thank you, Eileen. Matthew, you want to share? If Matthew's still here. Okay. Matthew? Hi. No, I'm, I'm driving, so I can't really, I perfect. can listen. Great, perfect. So I want to share one last thought. When is moral consciousness, when does moral consciousness emerge in the Torah? When does human moral consciousness emerge? In the Garden of Eden, as you know, the Adam and Eve are not moral beings. And what do they do? They eat from Eitz Hadat Tovera, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So how does their moral development occur? Well, we can define that however we want, making a mistake, breaking a rule, going back to Eddie's sharing earlier, right? Actually, the gentleness to enable children to play and not just play, but make mistakes and hurt feelings and not be canceled and not be kicked out and not just be done, but like enabling this space to feel loved, to feel valued, even while they're cultivating their moral consciousness. And so just as we should be gentle with ourselves um, uh, in so many ways, um, um, so too, I think if we can take anything away from this idea of kindness towards children, 
It is learning to um, how to be more gentle in ways we've never even imagined um, as they are developing physically and emotionally and intellectually and spiritually and in their sense of moral imagination and to create a playing field. Because I saw a study recently that said that if you have a fence in the backyard, the kids will play in a very small area of the, of the backyard. But if you take down the fence, I'm sorry, if you have a fence, they'll play in the whole backyard. But if you take down the fence, they'll play in a very small area. So us giving the structure will enable more playfulness to hold the space to make mistakes, hold a space where people can feel loved even as they err. So um, next week, we are going to look at vulnerable children. This week, the assumption was these are our children or our grandchildren um, or kids that we are in, uh, have in our care as, as babysitters or as teachers. Next week, we're going to look at the unwanted child or the neglected child and see how our tradition thinks about kindness in that realm. Hope everyone has a beautiful day. Thank you all so much for sharing and for, and for being together. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.